Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bible Ask Live, where we answer your Bible questions live here on our weekly show. My name's Tina with my friends, Jane Wendy. Hi, guys. How are you? Hello. Hello. We're great. How are you? I'm good. It's so good to have you guys back. Let me just tell you, um, last week we were missing Jane Wendy, and it was not the same. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> so I'm so glad to have you guys back this week. And I'm so grateful to all of our viewers out there who submitted questions. We have some really great questions that came in this week, as well as some other ones we want to just discuss and talk about tonight. So if this is your first time joining us, we want to welcome you and thank you for joining us. And we just want to remind you that this is a live show. So if you have comments or any thoughts or anything you want to share or just a question on the fly, be sure to put it down in the comment section below and whatever social media platform you're watching from, YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, whatever that may be. We always like hearing from our audience out there. And so we would love to interact with you as well while we um, talk about these awesome Bible questions and Bible topics. So before we get started, though, we always want to start with a word of prayer. So Jay, when do you want to pray for us? Sure, let's do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this week you brought us through and now for this time to rest and dig into your word and pray that your spirit dwell with all of us to guide us into your truth and into your love. And this, Lord, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. So, Wendy, what is our first question? Let's go ahead and get that question up. So, Roland is asking... Is the multiverse real? I I like this question. It's a very timely one because we're living in the age of multiverse, it seems like, if you watch lots of movies. And first, what is it? I My definition of multiverse, and Roland, if it's different than yours, I'm sorry, but the way I understand multiverse is this concept that there might be multiple universes. So this space, this three-dimensional dimensional space that makes up where we live and where our galaxy is and all the other galaxies it is, is just one of multiple other similar universes. And um, the idea might be like every time there's a possibility of, of something going right or going left, that creates a new multiverse where, where there was one universe where something went left and there's another universe where something went right. And I believe this kind of came about kind of as a crutch for evolutionists because as they look back at evolution and the amount of time it takes to explain certain things that certain phenomena we see, they have problems because either there might not be enough time or like over enough time, actually things become unproductive. Like you start losing life actually over a long enough time frame and things like that. So how can you, using randomness and chance, improve your chances of actually explaining how we got life as we have today? Well, let's have multiverses, and maybe there's trillions and infinite possible uh, universes in the multiverse, and we just happen to be the very lucky one where life actually happened, is kind of how they sort of cheat with the, the rules of probabilities. And then where we come along modernly is in Hollywood now uses this concept of multiverse to explain how maybe characters in one comic book can now interact with, with the characters in another comic book and also use it as a way to reboot, you know, so you've done uh, Spider-Man three times. Well, let's do him a fourth time. Let's do his, his origin story yet again, but it's okay because each one is a different, multiverse or universe within the multiverse so it's it's one of these things where yeah I, I think it's bad or unproven science and it's also a uh, hollywood technique is it biblical though so is the multiverse real according to what the bible says let's take a look let's read first genesis 1 1 this is one everybody should just be able to say from from memory, right? Which is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is all that we're really more or less told about when it comes to creation. Is God made heavens, God made the earth, and God made everything that's in them. And in particular, what's what's in the heavens or what heavens are we talking about? What earth? This especially is talking about uh, the ground 
the earth referring to the ground on the planet we walk on and then the heavens is more or less referring to the sky so you know sun moon and stars were seen as being a part of the sky the birds fly in the sky and then we know somewhere in the sky you'll find where god is uh, <clears throat> and that's kind of referred to as a third heaven you see the reference to third heaven uh being used in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, where Paul talks about indirectly referring to himself, how he gets caught up into the third heaven. So the first heaven kind of is like the immediate sky above us. The second heaven would be where the sun, moon, and stars are. And then the third heaven is where heaven is, where the, the third heaven, where God's doing is, which is higher than, is the highest of the heavens. Uh, so there's no custom multiverse here. Uh, when we come to the New Testament, we start seeing a different terminology emerge using the word eon. So you, you might hear like eons and eons ago. Uh, so it can refer to long periods of time. But this Greek word eon can also refer to multiple worlds or even the universe. And we see this, for example, used in Hebrews 11, verse 3. And it says, by faith, we understand that the worlds, so that's how the NKJV translates uh, aeon. It uses the word worlds here. Uh, I think maybe the NIV might say the universe. Says, so by this, we know that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which were seen were not made of things which were visible. So that is kind of now the more Greek understanding where they're thinking probably a little bit bigger than the Hebrew. The Hebrew probably was just thinking there's earth and then sun, moon, stars, who know what they are, who knows what they are. But uh, Greeks probably had a little bit more sophisticated scientific understanding. But that's, that's how far it goes. The Bible is not looking to give us a full, complete uh, scientific explanation of everything. There's lots of mysteries. God wants us to be able to spend all of eternity learning more. And that's something we should be excited about. Bible's not trying to be the answer everything book. Uh, so could there be multiverses? Could there be other or, or at least concept of other ways of existence that we don't know about? Absolutely. We cannot should not put God in a box. But the Bible doesn't speak of there being actually multiverses. Right? The best we get is there's the universe that God made. And God, uh, and, and especially the Bible wants to focus on the creation of the earth here, the, the ground and the air. And uh, even this concept of a spiritual realm where the spirits somehow occupy a different dimension than us corporal bodies. I would say that also is not, not a biblical concept. It, the Bible is not teaching that God lives in a different dimension than us. God is in the third heaven. He's in a different space where we cannot go. He's in a heavenly realm, the highest of the heavens. And, and it's more, uh, more think of humans as our domain is ground and earth and dirt. That's where we dwell. That's where we occupy, just like fish are stuck in the water and they have to breathe in water, live in water. That's kind of how it is for us. We're stuck living, breathing, walking on the face of the earth. And then the angels and God can dwell up in a higher domain like birds can, and uh, but even higher. So that's more the biblical way of thinking. And that's what we're told. So love your question. Thanks for asking. And Wendy, Tina, any thoughts, comments on that? You know, I think this is such an interesting concept. Um, you know, we're talking about multiverses and it's interesting how you brought up, you know, universe. And when you look at that word, um, you know, the original meaning of it, universe means uni meaning one mm -hmm. and verse meaning a single spoken or a spoken sentence. That's what, you know, a verse is like a verse of the Bible. It's a spoken sentence. So universe, one spoken sentence. And that's literally what the whole, you know, everything in existence is, is God spoke. God said in the beginning, he spoke and here we are. And so I think that's just such a fascinating, you know, idea that, you know, the whole idea of like, I, I feel this is where, you know, Satan always wants to make a counterfeit. And so he brings in something like a multiverse, like, oh, there's all these different things. And God is saying, no, there's one God. And he has one word that he says, and that's the one 
you know, reality that we really live in. And so I guess I, um, when you're saying, you know, universe and multiverse, that's really what comes to my mind is just how, you know, there's so many other deceptions out there. There's so many other ideas out there, but at the end of the day, it's the universe, the one true God who spoke one sentence and made one world that we live in now. And that's the reality we live in. And so, um, that's, that's what comes to my mind. And then just, you know, like you're kind of talking about too, um, Jay, at the beginning that, um, there's, you know, a lot of, um, you know, people who claim to be scientists, you know, they, they use this idea of a multiverse as part of, you know, to fill in gaps in their evolutionary theory. And I think that's so true because, you know, at the end of the day, whether you believe in God and a multiverse or God or, you know, this multiverse evolution, other things at the end of the day, it's faith. Um, at the end of the day, you're either putting your faith in God, our creator, or you're putting faith in the ideas of men and theories and, and so-called sciences that really don't pan out, uh, because science is supposed to be observable. And so I just can't help but go back to the book of Psalm in 146 verse three that says, um, do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. Um, and again, he goes, if you keep going in verse five, he says, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, their God. In verse six, he is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. And so I just thank God that he gives us his truth through his word. And we really don't need to be worrying about these other ideas and philosophies and you know, strange ideas out there when we have the truth for ourselves. So yeah, that's what I would say about that. I don't know. Yeah. Any other thoughts, Jay? No, that's good. And yeah, thanks for clarifying that uni means one. I took that for granted that people wouldn't catch that. All right. So shall, uh, well, first off, let's welcome a few of our viewers. We have Robert with us and Olivia. Hi, Happy Sabbath to both of you and to the other Facebook user who is joining us as well and commented. So great to have you all with us. And if anyone else is tuning in, please feel free to say hello and feel free also to ask any questions that are on your heart. All right. Bible-based questions, of course. <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and get our next question up. So Patsy is asking, why did the Samaritan woman leave her jars? You know, if I could grab this, Patsy, this is a fantastic question. I absolutely love this because there's so much spiritual truth to what you're asking. So you're asking the right kind of question in this story. And um, you're you know, going back to the story in John chapter four. So if we could just kind of go through it really quick, um, just to get some context, if, you know, if, our, if any viewers are out there who haven't, who are not familiar with the story of the Samaritan woman. So basically the story in a nutshell is that Jesus um, is trying to get somewhere and he passes through the city of, or the, um, this country of Samaria. And the thing is he's, you know, Jesus is a Jew. He's from Israel. And the thing is that is the the Jews and the Samaritans were not necessarily friends. They were kind of at odds with each other. And this was because in years past, um, there were Jews who had intermarried with other religions or people of other, you know, pagan beliefs. And they kind of made their own belief system that was kind of a mix of, you know, the true Jewish faith along with some other beliefs that weren't quite right. And so a lot of the Jews in, in Jesus's time, uh, actually believed that they were superior or better than these Samaritans, and they really looked down on them. And it was a terrible thing. And Jesus really came to break down these barriers because Jesus's, you know, message isn't just for, you know, one people group. His message is for everybody because that's who Jesus is. And so when you go uh, to the book of John chapter four, um, I'm just going to kind of summarize the story that, you know, Jesus is trying to pass through and he goes to a well around noontime, which is like the heat of the day, right? Like who wants to go, you know, have to carry all your big jugs of water when it's the hottest time of the day. But that's when Jesus arrives and that's when he meets this woman. And so um, Jesus, you know, the first thing he says is, will you give me some water? And he asks her a favor, which is something you would never really do to an enemy. And so this woman says, you know, she doesn't even you know, respond other than saying, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, water? Like, you have nothing to do with me. Like, she's, she's very much thrown back by this. And so Jesus 
um, answers her. He says, if you, in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so here we see Jesus is already making a spiritual reference. Jesus is already demonstrating like, hey, I know I'm asking you for physical water, but that has nothing to do with what I'm here about. I'm here for your spiritual needs. And so um, Jesus is offering her living water. He's already kind of getting to that point that he wants to um, offer her something better than what she's there looking for. She's looking for something physical, physical water, but Jesus is offering spiritual water. And so, um, you know, she basically, you know, withdraws and goes, you have, she doesn't understand. She's like, uh, you know, you, the well is deep. You have nothing to draw with, you know, where did you, what are you talking about getting living water? Um, and in a sense, you know, this is a spiritual condition of where she's at too, is that she says this well is deep, her pain, her, you know, the hole inside of her is deep. And she's saying, you have nothing to draw with, you know, basically Jesus, <laughs> you're not getting to me. Um, and Jesus. Um, and then she tries to make a religious debate. So Jesus just says, everybody who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will be in them a spring of water dwelling up into eternal life. And so Jesus is showing the promise of salvation. He's That's what Jesus is offering to her. And she says, you know, actually, I want this water. So she's opening up to Jesus. And she says, "I, you know, so I don't but she almost misunderstands it. She's so I won't get thirsty and have to keep humming, coming here to draw water because she actually has a lot of embarrassment about um, being here in this public place. And so Jesus gets right to the point and asks her, you know, go call your husband and come back. And she just says, I have no husband. And Jesus, you know, calls her out right away, says, you're right, you have no husband. You've well said that because the fact is you've had five husbands and this guy, six number six you're with now is not even your husband. So what you said is quite true. And so she's completely taken back because he's totally exposed her. He knows, you know, her past. She, she can't hide from him, but yet he's offering her salvation. He's, he, she's fully known and fully loved fully accepted. And it's such a beautiful story. Now, um, you know, she tries to do this religious debate and Jesus is just having no part of it because Jesus does not care about religious debates. <laughs> and so um, Jesus, you know, she basically brings up, you know, I've heard that the Messiah might be coming and Jesus basically tells her I am. And he hadn't revealed to almost anyone that who he was or his purpose on this earth. And that's where we get to what you're talking about, her leaving her water pot. And so, you know, Jesus, she goes, um, basically in verse 28, it says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything ever I did. Could this be the Messiah? And so basically she left the physical water because she was after something more. She was after that spiritual water that only Jesus could provide. And so here I definitely see it's just like a full surrender when it's saying she left her water pot. She left the earthly desire she had. She left her earthly cares behind. And she just sought after something way more important, which was to follow Christ. And she actually became basically the best evangelist <laughs> that the world has ever seen. She brought the whole town. Um, and if you read the rest of the story, it's really, really awesome. Basically the whole city of Samaria becomes converted because of this woman and her telling her testimony of how Jesus had shown her who she was and yet still offered her the gift of salvation. And so she's declaring to these people who Christ is, that he is a Messiah and he is a loving God. He is a forgiving God. And he's a God who's offering us more than just our physical needs. So yes, she definitely left those water jars because she had no care for them anymore. She was after something more and something greater. So I think that's kind of the spiritual lesson in the story. That's what I get from it. I don't know, Jay or Wendy, do you have any other thoughts on that one? No, that, that was good. I, this is just one of those things that I just always took for granted and never thought deeper about. Yeah. Isn't that like how the Bible is? There's like always this little nugget that God throws in there and it's like, oh yeah, you don't think about it. But every word of God has something important. It has a meaning. He put, he, God doesn't, you know, waste his words. Um, and there's so many things that, you know, God doesn't put in the Bible, but when he puts something there, there's usually 
you know, just something, just a little gem of truth or, you know, just a revelation of who God is or his character or something more um, than, you know, what meets the eye. Exactly. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and get our next question up. So this question is from Michael. He says, I'm learning Hebrew by reading the Old Testament in the original. Much of what seems explicit in the King James Version is actually inferred and implicit in the Hebrew text. Is this a widespread characteristic of biblical Hebrew? And Michael, I love this question. I really love it. And first, I want to give you big kudos for actually making the effort to learn Hebrew and study the Bible in Hebrew. Because as you're seeing now, you're opening up a whole new world, which you don't get when you're reading the English verses. And it's not the fault of the English translators. It's just the natural result, the natural struggle of what's going to happen when you try to translate something from its original language into a new and different, completely uh, completely different language. And, and with language comes lots of context, with lots of history, lots of culture. And I, I had this big revelation when I, I studied Arabic for a summer, and I just realized, holy cow, the when I learned Arabic, I suddenly understood the Middle East a whole lot better and the people and why they are, the way they act, the way they think, just by learning the language. And so it's the same way for Hebrew. To learn Hebrew, the language, you also have to learn Hebrew, the people and their experiences and, and what the world was like for them and how did they view the world. And when you do that, you realize there's so much more to the words that are there than what we could ever possibly get in a very concise translation like we have. So uh, as you suggest, there's implicit and explicit meanings. There's something that might be the obvious, straightforward meaning of it. But at the same time, the words might have these um, implicit, kind of hidden, not as clear meanings associated with them. And they're both there. And when the translators have to translate, they're just going to go with the most simple, trans, uh, most obvious uh, meaning usually, right? <coughs> and of course, they'll look at the context, do their best to try to put it into English. In the translators are doing amazing jobs when you actually think of the struggle that they go through to convey the meanings. I'm often very impressed. But let's look at a specific without um, you know, just being abstract. Let's look at a verse. Let's take a look at... Uh, one of my favorite for this is Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And this is a verse which reads about how God formed man out of the dust of the ground and then breathed into him the breath of life. And when we just see it in English, we're like, eh, what's going on? Oh, and by the way, and then it ends, and, and then man became a living soul or creature or uh, the Hebrews could be nefesh. When we look at the original Hebrew, we see three times a word associated with breathing being used. And then we see three times a word associated with ground being used. And it's emphasizing something, breath, 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 ground, ground, ground. And so what are these words, especially the ground? Like, I don't, I see it's, it says it formed Adam out of the ground, but where's the other grounds? Well, the Hebrew word for ground is Adama. The word for man is Adam. So God made Adam out of the Adama, out of the ground. And so right there, even just the name of man is closely associated with ground. And we miss that context. You know, I, I was talking earlier about how man's domain is really the ground, the earth. That's where we are. And in a sense, we get a touch of the heavenly. We have a little bit of essence of the heavenly in us, which God does through breathing air into us. And then we're now breathing and connected and dependent on the air and, and reminded of the, the heavenly realm, in a sense, by every breath we take. 
and and it and going back to and man became a living soul or a living creature uh, that word there nefesh actually literally literally would mean like a living breathing creature a, a breathing creature um, so it's a that word is related to the words that when god breathed into adam the breath of life those are words that are related to then uh, nefesh, the, the breathing creature word also. So three times breathing creature, three times ground. And so the Bible, the verse is emphasizing this again and again, and it gets lost when we just read the English. And is there any way to possibly translate that and, and bring that context into the English? Not without this explanation like it just gave. So I, I want to really applaud you. Michael, for for learning the Hebrew, getting into it, and digging deeper, and I hope that all of you will will challenge yourself yourselves to do that. Especially verses where you struggle, you're not getting the meaning. You look at the different translations; they seem to be all over the place. That's a great time to then really dig into the the original Greek, original Hebrew, and your mind might just get blown about the possibilities of of what all the words in that verse uh, might be trying to say. Tina, Wendy, anything? Yeah, no, I I definitely commend our friend here for learning Hebrew. It's so beautiful. Like I don't speak Hebrew, you know, in any way, shape, or form fluently, but you know, I have used. Um, I'm sure so many of you out there. We always recommend this Blue Letter Bible, where you can go and find, um, you know, the original the you know those the bible in its original language either hebrew aramaic or greek and it gives you you know much a much richer and a deeper understanding of what that text is really saying and so um yeah no i think jay you you definitely um hit the nail on the head exact as far as you know how um it is a bit different but um in a way i can't help but like think you know when you're asking um that a lot of things that are explicit in the King James is inferred in the Hebrew text. The people who translated it must have really understood um, kind of the the culture and the the nuances of you know these original languages to be able to translate it in such a way that it um, things had to be explicit. And it kind of reminds me of um, just how you know American culture is, just in the sense that you know our culture because it's so new and it has such a a variety of sub of cultures in it, we really have to be very explicit. Whereas if you go to a culture that's been around forever, like you go to the Middle East and that culture has been around for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, there's so many, it's such a richer and deeper culture because they've had the time to really develop, you know, um, implied things and things that, you know, don't need to be said because everybody understands the culture. And so, and that's actually a really good point. Yeah, a super good point. Yeah, and I I remember um, taking a class on this when I was uh, a newlywed because I realized I'd married into a different culture, and I was like, you know, I really want to understand that, and that was basically the biggest take home from this class on um, cultural culture and relationships is just how um, you know when there when it's not easy to understand a culture, it's just or what to do, then things just have to be super explicit, like. Um, like, for example, if you're going into certain Middle Eastern cultures, um, you know, in American culture, if you offer something, you just say, no, thanks. And then it's done that the exchange is over. But in other cultures, like certain Middle Eastern cultures, you offer and you have to say no. But that's not the end of the exchange. You you understand that 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 there's more to it. Um, you have to offer at least three times. And then after three offers, if they really say, no, no, I insist, no, then that actually means no. And so it's just kind of, um, you know, one of, I'm sure, hundreds of examples of different cultures out there where, yeah, like there's so many nuances, so many things that are, you know, only understood within that culture, within that context. Um, and, you know, again, like, the, that's the tough thing about, you know, English being a, a newer language, um, especially the modern English that we speak today. It just doesn't have that richness like the Hebrew does, which has been around forever. And so, yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying. Yeah. And, and I could give you even an example of how meanings morphed over time, even within the Bible. So, mm. so like, yeah, the mm -hmm. Old Testament, I mean, you're exactly right, Tina. A lot of words might start off 
potentially with a more clear apparent meaning, but then over time morph as more and more meaning comes out of it. And, and it's more the implicit explicit. I think more what rather you see is you have a literal meaning. So mm -hmm. for example, you have a word for hot. Someone's getting, you know, this thing is hot. And then mm -hmm. over time, someone says, you know, I feel like when you get angry, you get hot. So then the word for hot, getting hot becomes the word for also getting angry. Mm -hmm. And we see that yeah. in, in, in Hebrew. And, and then you take a word like uh, nefesh, we were just talking about, which mm -hmm. in Genesis 1 is talking about a living, breathing creature. And over mm -hmm. time, it begins to refer to a living person and to life itself. And then and then continue to morph into really talking about your your essence. Like, you know, I love you with all my soul. Talk about your, you know, this deepest inner um, essence of, of, of who someone is, like almost like one's heart. And and you see big gaps, for example, like between Moses's book, books, the the Pentateuch. And then if you look at the books, let's say around the time of of David and and Solomon and 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 them. There might be now different usages of the same words coming about as the language becomes more sophisticated or people or these words develop secondary meanings. So, yeah. and yeah. it's funny you talk about that, too, because even in the English language, you know, our language has developed so much in the last, you know, 100 years. And the thing is, too, what we forget in, in, in language is we use so many things like that are figurative, like idioms. And you even kind of see them sometimes pop up in the Bible. Like mm -hmm. God says, you know, that you're the apple of my eye. And that's not, you know, that's a, that's an idiom. It's a phrase. And it, you know, it doesn't literally mean that you are an apple that God puts in his eye. Right. It's just like, you know, we say things like, oh, it's raining cats and dogs. Now there's so many, you know, expressions yep. that we have. And it's, um, I, I can't imagine the, you know, the, the duty you would feel as a translator of the Bible, the most important book ever written to make sure you convey the right message because it's not always literal. Like what you're saying is not always a literal thing. Um, or you might be translating, you know, a, a phrase that happened then that, you know, it, so again, like it, their language is so deep and so um, meaningful, but also it, it can just be so complex. It's not just black, you know, it's not just always a straightforward thing. And so, yeah, I think that that's something we really have to, you know, consider when we're, when we're thinking about the Bible and, and every translation is, you know, basically yeah. what's the, the essence of the message being spoken of in that, in that verse. And what's also really interesting is just how the Bible through the centuries has actually developed languages. Languages have had to be developed and modernized to even mm. accommodate translations of the Bible. Uh, so Luther, as he's translating the Bible, is is stretching German yeah, language right. to its limits. Uh, you know, and coming up with new words, new combination of words that hadn't existed before. And then Tyndale, as he's working on the English translation, is working on his his Bible that then becomes a, a big basis for uh, the 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 King James version down the road. He also now, I think it was Tyndale, um, maybe it's the other other guy, Wesley. Um, I'm sorry, Wycliffe. Wesley, yeah, maybe it was Wycliffe or or uh, Tyndale. He he then again is coming up with new words that didn't exist, like Passover. He came up with the word Passover, mm -hmm. scapegoats, you know, all these things where there was no English equivalent whatsoever. And he's now creating words for the English language so that we can even translate and read and somewhat get a grip of what's being said there. Yeah, that's so interesting. You're right, because I mean, in like in my background, like I I study you know, semantics, like that's a big part of what I do. And, um, in my day job, <laughs> because I wish I could just study the Bible for my, my job job, but you know, I have to pay bills. And so, but a big part of what I do is semantics and just understanding language and really it's, it's symbolic. So, uh, you know, how is it that, you know, um, you take a, you know, the letter D O G and then you make D A G, you make these set three sounds and it immediately a picture pops into people's heads of a small furry animal. And it's just kind of like, you know, it's, it's a message that you're trying to convey. And so God is using, you know, what he can to convey the right message. And so, you know, I think, you know, when it comes to the Bible and, 
um, you know, again, like translation, understanding God's word, it just always goes back to what is the essence? What is the message that God is trying to give to our world? And I think that's why it's, um, you know, we really have to just focus on that and not get so caught up in little technical things. Um, whereas, you know, what is the basic message? And I think it's so awesome that when you look from Genesis to Revelation in the book of the, you know, in the Bible, which was written by, you know, 66 books, 40 authors across three continents over a span of a thousand five hundred years. And yet there's one central theme, which that is Jesus, you know, the Messiah, our savior. And so the message that God is trying to tell to you is, you know, God sent his only begotten son because he loves you and he wants to save you and he wants to rescue you from this world of sin. And so, you know, as much as there's all these things, there is a, at the end of the day, there is a point, <laughs> there is a very clear message that God is trying to say to his people. So I think that's cool too. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get our next question up. And I think maybe I should say for the next questions coming up, these are very much discussion questions. And those of you who are live with us, feel free to chime in and share uh, your answers to these questions as well. Let's have some, let's have some fun. Yeah. And actually real quick too, I just want to let people know that if you're a Quora user, um, you know, we, we have taken questions from Quora. And so if you have, um, if you ever, you know, want to have your questions asked, be sure to go to our website, bibleask.org, and you can submit questions there. Um, or you can share, you know, what you've put um, through Cora with us. So just um, putting that out there as well. So just putting that out there for our Cora users is, you know, there is that link. Awesome. Let's get that question up. All right. So Marie is asking, in the Bible, what have you read that has left you in utter disbelief, leaving you wondering just how, just why? Man, Marie, <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> I definitely hear you. You know, there's a lot of things in the Bible where you, um, where I've, you know, definitely been stumped. And I'm like, you know, I don't know. I don't have an answer for this. And I think the best thing that I've ever heard for this, when something like this happens, because it, it will happen more than once. If you read the Bible, I've read the Bible from cover to cover, forward and to back, and I'm reading the Bible now back to the front and, and everywhere in between, um, just because it's something so fascinating and so beautiful and just so deep. But at the same time, there's a lot of stuff or a lot of topics or just stories sometimes that come up that I'm like, I don't understand. I really don't. I don't know what God was you know, trying to do in sharing this with his people in his book. But that doesn't mean I will always not understand. That doesn't mean I'll always be in this state of, you know, being unsure. And what I have to think about is a parable that Jesus gave where he says, you know, first this, he's like, you know, if you plant corn, it doesn't start out as a fully grown plant. It's first a grain and it goes in the dirt. It's a seed. And then it becomes you know, a little plant and then it bears a leaf and then it bears the ear and then, you know, it's fully developed corn that you can actually eat and partake of. And so it's something that flourishes over time. And I have to, you know, compare that to God's word and that there's parts of the Bible that are very clear, you know, right off the bat. But then there's other verses where, um, especially like I would say um, stories in the book of Judges, oh, that book drives me nuts. <laughs> I just tell you, there's so many weird things, weird stories in there that I'm like, I don't get it. I don't understand. Um, and so anyways, or I you know felt that way before, but in time I've kind of grown to be like, okay, God is, you know, sharing something deeper and he's, or he's saying, you know, there's, he shares an atrocity that happened and he's not condoning it, but he's rather saying, you know, this is a human condition and he God is just showing you the reality of the result of sin. And so, um, but so what I would say though, if you're having those moments where you're just like, I don't understand, I have more questions than answers after reading this verse or passage or story, um, is something that a, a pastor once told me or in a sermon and he said, basically, there's going to be topics in the Bible that are just going to throw you off. And you just kind of need to take those topics and put them on a shelf. They don't go in the trash. They go on a shelf. And you're going to 
let them ferment or whatever have you, let them sit until it's the right time. And as you continue to read and as you continue to study, you might then find links to, you know, that correspond with what you're reading or what you've read that were passages that might've confused you or caused you to question things. And then you see how maybe there's connections later, or you might understand it at a different time or in a different way, just later as you continue to study. So I would just say, like shelving is what I tend to do is I just take it and go, you know, I don't understand this at the moment, but I believe by faith that God will reveal it to me. And sure enough, um, you know, like I said, the probably one of the biggest ones is a story in the book of judges where this man has a, a concubine and she keeps cheating on him. And then like, she's basically raped to death and she's cut up in 12 pieces. It's a pretty graphic story. And so anyways, um, I, I'm just like, God, I don't understand this until later on. Like I was, cause I was literally like, God, is this something you're saying? This is a good thing. I don't understand why it's here in your book. And later I realized, oh, this is here to show that, you know, God's people can still be a mess. Like there's still problems in our church that match the problems in the world. And it's not that God says that this is any way okay because it wasn't and God did not condone this in any way. God is simply showing us like how awful the result of sin really is. And so as much as I didn't like the story because it made me sick, it was made me, you know, it was disturbing. It made me realize that God is trying to get his message across that if you, just because you're in God's church, just because you, you know, take the name of, you know, Christian or whatever, that doesn't mean that sin cannot exist. And that doesn't mean you're exempt from, you know, experiencing, you know, serious things. And that we have to understand that we are in a sinful world and that we can't just think, oh, just because I go to church, I'm free and exempt from, you know, trials or, or from, you know, bad things, but rather it's, you know, um, and also just thinking that, you know, just because you go to church, that doesn't mean you'll never do something bad. You won't be tempted. You will be tempted, but you have to, you know, put your trust in God who can help you to overcome that. And, um, and again, God is trying to show us the human condition, which is that of sin and that it's not something to be trifled with. It's not, you know, why is the punishment for sin so serious? Because it results in terrible, terrible things that can happen to people. And God wants to put an end to those things. So that's one of my thoughts. I don't know, Jay, um, sorry, talk too much. <laughs> what are you thinking? Oh, those are, those are definitely some of the ones I was trying to think of and, and how to articulate. So I'm glad you covered that. And uh, definitely our viewers love to hear from you. What are you what are verses, what are things in the Bible that you're like, wait, why is that here? Why is why did that happen? Uh, love to hear you. Uh, for me, though, I'd say just one that I keep experiencing again and again are in the epistles. They're the letters in the New Testament, like the Old Testament, the, the Gospels, and a couple other books in the Bible are very well polished, and the words are very, very carefully selected and chosen. But especially like the letters of Paul and there's some verses in the letters by Peter and John where just like, guys, couldn't you have just wordsmith this a little bit better so that we could avoid a whole lot of headache and heartache and divisions, you know, years down the road, you know, generations down the road. So for me, that's my usually my big why. Yeah, and I would say for me, I mean, the as I was coming to reading the Bible more, there was definitely a lot of verses I came across where I just, um, I, I kind of had that response. And I was like, this, like, how does this fit the character of a loving God? And then as I talked to certain scholars who really understood the original, um, you know, Greek and Hebrew and understood the language differences and everything and the translation differences, oftentimes what they were able to show me was that there are things in the translations, the English translation translations that are not, that are not accurate and actually can have a very different meaning than what the, what can be taken from the original Greek or Hebrew, which is more consistent with the character of God. And so um, I would say that that's, you know, for me, it was just, it's just when I find those things that don't make sense to me, 
it's an indication that I need to really study it more to understand what was really truly meant by this rather than how has it been translated into English that we use today and how has culture changed our, our cultural understanding of something influenced how we perceive and interpret that rather than how God actually, what God was actually trying to convey to us and wanted us to know about it. That's really true. And, you know, just another thought that came to my mind, because I remember a time when I had read, because, um, you know, when I read the Bible, I, I think, you know, you have to put it all together to make one, you know, cohesive thought, one cohesive um, belief. You know, we can't just be one verse that, you know, you just, and you say, that's it. That's what I believe. And that's, that's all. And you don't listen to any other part of the Bible. And so when I've read the Bible, it, to me, it's become very, very clear that, you know, when you die, you're sleeping and you're asleep until Jesus comes. You know, you look at first Thessalonians four, you know, just, you know, the dead, in, you know, it says those who are asleep and those, and then when Jesus comes, those who are dead in Christ will rise first and will be caught up together in heaven. And there's so many other verses that correlate with that, like first Corinthians 15, um, so much of what Jesus teaches in the gospels. And even you see in the old Testament, but then I was reading the Bible one day and, you know, you see that story of Jesus on the cross with the, the thief who repents in Luke 23. And in verse 43, it says, Jesus answered him, comma, you know, quotation, truly, I tell you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise, period. And I said, wait, what? I thought that when you died, you slept and you slept until Jesus coming because that's what it says, like in the book of Daniel chapter 12, that's what it says in the book of First Thessalonians 4, this is what Jesus talks about. Like it was just so, so, so clear. You see that all throughout the book of Psalms, um, you know, all these things. But then I was like, but Jesus is saying this. I was like, of course, I'll take Jesus' word over the rest of the Bible. But I was like, but the Bible should be consistent. But then I, so I put on the shelf until later, um, I found out that in Hebrew and, or excuse me, in Greek or, you know, those languages, there is no punctuation. So the comma there shouldn't be there. There is no comma to put there in the old, in these languages. And so it really wasn't Or, or at least at that time, the, the original manuscripts did not have the, the punctuation. Exactly. Yeah. And so it was like, it, it just shouldn't have been there. And so it, the person who put the comma there did that based on their beliefs and not based on, you know, I would say basically a correct translation. And so when I looked at the verse again, I said, oh, if there was just no punctuation there, then that verse fits everything else in the Bible, which is the same idea from, again, Genesis to Revelation, which is that when you die, you sleep until the second coming, unless you have a special resurrection or you have a special, um, you know, um, translation like Elijah, you know, there's a few people who've had a special situation because of their specific walk with God. But, you know, when I see that verse now, Luke 23, 43, truly, I tell you today, Jesus promises him that day, today is the day of salvation. You will be with me in paradise. I said, oh, now that makes a lot more sense. So <laughs> anyways, um, you know, that's just one of a few things too. So again, just if you don't understand don't give up on the Bible. Don't give up on your faith. Just say, Lord, I give this to you. I'm going to put it on the shelf. And in your time, Lord, I trust that you are going to give me the, the full understanding of what you're saying to me in this, in this passage. And you'll appreciate it even more when God gives it to you. Uh, just because like, you know, like so many things, certain things are worth waiting for and they even become better because you've waited for them. So yeah, I don't know. Any other thoughts on that one? Nope. Nope. Very good. All right. Let's get the next question up. So this question from Marie is asking, what are some things in the Bible that raise more questions than they answer? I feel like we kind of went through that a bit. I don't know. Um, just kind of like we were saying, like there's certain things that, you know, make you question God's character. Like, you know, there's... Um, you know, things in the Bible where you see like God is saying to destroy a people group and you're going, wait, God is love. Like that doesn't make sense. Or, you know, things that seem to contradict, 
you know, pretty clear passages. Um, again, like, I don't know, there's, there's some things that it's really typically, you know, things that make you think like maybe God's character is something other than it is. And I would say that that's definitely, you know, not the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is to lead you into all truth. And so um, just anything that, you know, there's lots of things like that. Like I said earlier in the book of Judges, there's stories of, you know, atrocities and things that happen that make me think, you know, is God wanting suffering? But of course, you know, I see, no, God is not willing that any should perish. God is, you know, God is saying, turn to me and live. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I, you know, the thief, Satan comes to steal, kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and life more abundant. And so that is God's true character. Um, and so I think things that make you quite, you know, make more questions and answers are things that make you question, you know, God's character. But I think as you study more and you see God more for who he is, that becomes less and less. Um, and I see, I think I see that the, the most clearest picture in the book of Genesis, you know, chapter two with the, or excuse me, chapter three with the temptation and the fall where, you know, Satan basically perverts God's word where he says, you know, has God really said this, you know, and, you know, basically puts doubt in Eve to doubt God's word, to doubt God's character of love. And as soon as Eve starts doubting who God is, doubting his word and promise to her and the truth, that's when she gives into the deception of Satan and gives into sin and we see destruction that follows. And so I guess that's where like, I don't really have as much of that um, happening because now I just kind of see things for what they are is when we see, you know, issues coming up with God's word, it's typically more, you know, our, you know, our disposition to distrust God. And so, um, when those things happen, you know, when questions happen, doubts happen, that's more, um, something in us that needs to be changed that should call, you know, make us turn to God and say, God, who are you? Are you the God that you say you are? You are, are you the God of love? And I believe that as we seek God, we will find him when we search for him with all of our hearts. So I don't know, Jay or Wendy, other thoughts? What are your thoughts? I would say the, um, the other thing that I think does raise, I, I agree with things you're saying there and the spirit, uh, is a key thing here. What is the spirit behind those questions? Um, I think another thing, though, that does raise more questions than it answers is w what is heaven like exactly? There's, um, you know, we get we get some descriptions here and there of what that is like, but there are so many things that are so hard to reconcile or understand uh, with our earthly understanding of how things work right now. And um, so I think there's a lot of questions that come up around what is heaven truly like, given certain things that, that scripture says. Yeah, for me, the things that always raise more questions than the answer is pretty much anything telling us about God. The one thing that we have the most certainty and clarity, clarity on should be that God is love. That's the one thing we should not doubt about him. But pretty much anything else, we're trying to figure out what exactly is God made out of? Um, you know, what does it mean to be God? And, uh, you know, does God exist in one dimension, multiple, like all these things? Like we're not told. God is supposed to be a mystery. He's supposed to be far beyond our knowledge and comprehension. Uh, if we are able to comprehend God, that means we are God ourselves. So too many people split and divide the church over debates about God and what God is and what God is like. And a lot of these especially might surround like the, the nature of the Holy Spirit and what is the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy, you know, how, to what extent or whatever the Holy Spirit is God and all this. And, and, and I think the best advice is that we just need to be comfortable with, with not having all the information and, understand that there could be multiple possibilities and we just let's focus on what we do know what god really wants us to know with certainty that he loves us that he exists and he has a plan he's coming back and he needs the world to be ready so 
to me. That's we need to keep our eyes on the ball and not get not go down the rabbit holes that God doesn't want us to be going down right now. All of eternity is supposed to be for that ongoing discovery process. And so for us to live an eternal, everlasting life, to live trillions of years means that there has to be an infinite universe of, of knowledge that will take that long to get. And so that's why we should be excited. We should be excited that there is so much yet to learn, to experience, to wrap our heads around. And we're going to continue to study the Bible. Just as today we're studying the Bible and every day we can learn something new. It's going to be like that through all of eternity. And it's going to be incredible to do that even with Jesus there to point you. Said, you know, and say things like, you know, see that Bible verse here? Well, there's also this other meaning and, and this meaning. And it's, it's going to be glorious. So embrace not knowing right now and live by faith. That That is what God calls us to do, to, do, to live by faith. I think that's really true. I think that's actually kind of a good lead into our last uh, discussion question. I don't know if we want to get that up real quick before we wrap it up for this evening. Sure. Let's, let's bring that question up. So Lily B is asking, do you have a habit of having one Bible verse as a new year team? I think she meant theme. theme yeah, probably oh, theme, okay, new year yeah. theme. Um, and I just wanted to, say, you know, I actually don't <laughs> pick a Bible verse as my theme for the year. I have, at, you know, I definitely, as, you know, things happen in life, like I'll, I'll take a verse and hold on to it for that specific season of my life. Uh, like when I was pregnant, I felt very impressed to pray um, the, the Psalm 91, um, which was happening, you know, during COVID and, you know, which is, you know, that the noisome pestilence will not come nigh your dwelling. And then God's promise in Isaiah where he says, you know, you know, fear not for I'm with you. Be not afraid for I am your God. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you. Um, I will strengthen you. I'll uphold you with the right, my righteous right hand. And so, you know, those are verses that I took with me um, and clung on to during that specific time in my life. Um, but what I would say just as a verse for like this year that I feel if I was going to pick a verse that I think would be like a good one to start the new year with, um, and believe it or not, like the new year is around the corner. Can you believe it, guys? Two months almost. <laughs> We're done with 2023. Like I'm starting to like hit me. I'm like, there's Christmas decorations everywhere, people. Like <laughs> where did this year go? And so, um, you know, if I was going to pick a verse for a new year, I would probably pick Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, which says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward um, to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So if I was going to pick a, a new year verse, I think that would be it. Just forget the past and keep going forward and just reaching for the high prize of Jesus, who is my savior. And so I don't know, Jay or Wendy, what do you, what do you guys think? I I think it's a good idea to have at any one time a verse that you're really trying to wrap your head around and internalize and make yours for that period. I probably tend to do it more on a daily basis, but I also like the idea of having one for the year. That's I think I think that's a, a very good idea. Yeah, and I would say for me also it's more short, it's more um a, a shorter term that it's a seasonal thing it's and, and i don't necessarily mean like seasons of the year i mean like seasons of life it's a um it might be a situation that i'm going through this week or this month or a few months or a couple days it's that sort of thing and then there's usually some kind of verse that uh is kind of my north star during that time that this is this is the verse that is guiding me through this particular situation of life, and it changes as life's situations change. I think that's real a really cool thought. Calling that verse like a north star, like that's really true. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, and that's really you know what God's word is all about. 
Yeah. Um, so I do see that we are at the one hour mark. So we just want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. If you have questions that you'd like featured on our show, be sure to go to our website, bibleask.org uh, forward slash live. And you can submit questions there, like we said, to be featured on our weekly show. And um, uh, again, this is a live show and we air on Friday night at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So we hope to see you again next week and we hope that you participate with us. I know I saw Sean M say an amen. So thank you <laughs> so much, Sean, for joining us and, and all of our friends. Olivia saying thank you. God bless you, all of our friends out there. And if you've enjoyed what you've seen, please be sure to like and share our content. It just helps us share God's word and be a blessing to more people in the world. And so we just want to thank you all for joining us. We hope we see you again next week at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And with that, we're going to go ahead and close with a word of prayer. So Jay Wendy, uh, do you want to pray for us? Sure. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your Sabbath, for this time that you give us each week to come together to share your word and your love, your character with people. We thank you for this rest that you give us and for your promise to always provide for us and to know that we don't have to provide for ourselves on, you know, especially on this day each week that we get to just rest in you and spend this time getting to know you more and deepening our relationships that in ways that will honor and glorify you, Lord. And we pray that you will be with our viewers and all of us as we go about our weekend and week ahead. And uh, we just continue to thank you, Lord, for your constant care and provision in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you so much. And again, we hope to see you again next week, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. God bless everybody. Good night. Thank you.